Welcome, all of you wine and true crime lovers. I'm your host, Brandy, and this is Texas Wine and True Crime. Thank you for being here, friends, for part two of the Yogurt Shop Murders. Flying solo tonight, but Chris will be back with us on the next episode. I'm sure you miss him as much as I do on the show. I am so happy to be back. We hope everyone had a lovely holiday and happy new year to each and every one of you. Tonight, I am sipping on a white wine, Albarino, from our friends at Edge of the Lake Vineyard. You can help support our show right here on our website, TexasWineAndTrueCrime.com. Just click on Buy Us a Glass of Wine, that link right there on the website, and we will give you lots of love and thanks on the show. New year, new wine. Um, We're just so excited. All right, friends, let's go ahead and jump into part two of the Yogurt Shop Murders. It's time to sip some wine and talk some crime. Okay, so in part one, I gave everyone a sad and terrible visual about what these these girls endured, endured that night. This past December 2021 was the 30 year anniversary of this unsolved case. I do need to make one correction. I believe I said on part one that Eliza was found stacked on top of Jennifer. But in actuality, um, she her body was stacked on top of Sarah's. I just want to make that um, clarification. And I say this all the time, but crimes against children are particularly difficult to talk about. Children are innocent victims to predators and are easily preyed upon when given the opportunity. I feel innocent until proven guilty is what characterizes our justice system to allow fair trials and not to convict innocent people for crimes they didn't commit. But when grown adults prey upon children and take away everything that is pure and innocent, I think they should be subject to the same treatment. I don't have one solid ounce of sympathy for the people who committed this crime. Um, We're going to talk about... Um, motive. We're going to talk about confessions on this episode. But the monsters that these girls encountered that night is hard to even get your head around. Um, But tonight we are going to talk about opportunity and what motivated this crime. So in part one, I talked about the crime scene a little bit and how the girls were found. I posted a simulated photo of where the girls' bodies were found in the back area of the yogurt shop. Um, You can find those on our social media pages at Texas Wine and True Crime. We know the front door was locked when firefighters arrived, and we know the back door was unlocked and slightly open. So the manager of the yogurt shop stated there would have been no reason for those girls to have unlocked the back door. We also know the office in the back of the yogurt shop was locked, which did contain money and a safe. So this will become important when we talk about motive in this case, because there was approximately about $540 taken that night, but there was still money in the cash register. There is money in the safe in the office. Also next to the cash register, an unopened Coke and a cup that had contained ice since police noted saturation on the cup when they were going and over the scene. The other thing found by the cash register was the key to the office. 
So in Beverly Lowry's book that I have been referencing um, through part one, and I will be through part two, that book is called Who Killed These Girls? Police theorize that someone probably ordered a Coke from Eliza because she was working the cash register that night. And then she there was um, this this freezer area that contained ice. And I do believe it was basically counter level or a little bit below. But she may have had to bend down to actually put the ice into the cup. And most likely when she stood up, there was probably a gun that was pulled on her. Which is why I believe the no sale that rang up was her opening the register. And this is when the crime started. So we know that some of the girls were bound um, and some were gagged. But it is believed that the gagging came before the girls' hands were bound because all the girls were found gagged except Amy. Um, Now, remember, Amy's hands were not found bound, and she did not have a gag in her mouth either. But I personally think that's because either she did get free at some point and removed the gag, or the knotted piece of clothing they found around her neck may have also been used as the gag. So we know all the girls were shot with a 22 caliber, but Amy was also shot with a 380 caliber since the first shot did not kill her. Sarah, Jennifer, and Eliza had all been burned beyond recognition, but Amy's burns were less severe. The fire we know was started in the back of the yogurt shop where there were shelves, styrofoam cups, there was their metal from a um, a ladder had melted, and just based on the details of how the fire was started, the ATF, the Austin Police Department, the, the firemen, everyone that was on site, basically nobody smelled an accelerant at the scene. Okay, I think between part one and this episode, you guys probably now have a have sense of the crime scene. So let's talk about what happened after the girls are found. We know that a lot of DNA evidence was lost when firefighters put out the blaze. There was water everywhere in this yogurt shop. I read somewhere that there was about 400 to 500 gallons of water used to put out this fire. So on the walls, it's on the floors. The place had been totally drenched. And that is a tough thing to get past when looking for evidence. Now, I'm not certain Austin really was... Well, we know Austin was not ready to take on a crime like this one. In 1991, also Austin was considered small. Um, you had two lead investigators that were on this case back in 1991, Jones and Huckabee. Now, remember, Jones was the only homicide investigator on uh, basically on duty that night. I mean, they didn't have you know, special, um, you know, different divisions in their police department that handled this and this and that. I mean, this was a pretty tiny police department. And, you know, they started just pulling all the resources they could in order to comb the scene. So you have the ME's office, which stands for medical examiner. So you have them there. Now they're responsible for removing the bodies from the scene and reporting and performing the autopsies. So they also had a DNA task force. But guys, this is 1991. So fingerprints is really all they are familiar with at this time. You have the Austin Police Department collecting evidence and you have a bunch of people stepping over each other, trying to coordinate efforts 
to solve this horrible crime. But here's the issue. There is no log being kept of who's entering and exiting the building. People are not wearing anything protective over their shoes to preserve evidence. And just they're trampling through the crime scene. The back lock on the back door, which is believed um, to be the exit that the perps used to leave the shop, has never been located. And the lock was changed the day after the murders. You have a very chaotic scene, and understandably, the Austin PD needed all the help they could get, but inexperience of dealing with an arson homicide definitely left holes in the investigation. Sorry, I needed a little sippy sip. (laughs) In Beverly Lowry's book on this case, okay, she has a list of facts about the case that police at the time were trying to hold back from the public. Now, this list would change over time since word was spreading. People were coming up with their own assumptions of what happened to the girls. But here are some of those facts. How and where the fire was started. The key in the front door. How much money was taken how the girls' bodies were arranged, what was used to bind the girls, that the office was not entered, that the office key was still under the cash register, the caliber of weapons, a twenty-two and a three eighty. the two pairs of the victim's underpants were missing, Amy's missing leather bomber jacket, Amy's bruise under her chin from a blow of some kind, That Amy was strangled and what she was strangled with. That Amy was shot twice with two different caliber guns. So I mentioned this list changes over time, but these were the facts that police really wanted to keep private and not out in the public. But rumors start to spread. Okay, you have 50 plus people on the scene. So that is 50 plus mouths to talk about what they witnessed that night. The city of Austin began to play a game of some sort of telephone in a way. You would hear one thing and then someone hears another. So unfortunately, there were key facts leaked early on. And that made this investigation difficult from the very beginning. Now we have the investigation underway just a few days after the girls are found. Eight days after the murders, a teenager by the name of Maurice Pierce was arrested for carrying a weapon in a public area, more specifically Norcross Mall. His friend, Forrest Wellborn, was also with him that day at the mall. The gun, it happens to also be a twenty-two. Maurice Pierce was 15 years old in 1991. At the time, he hung out with three others, Robert Burns Springsteen IV, Michael Scott, and Forrest Wellborn. Because the weapon found on Maurice was a .22, and it's the same caliber used in the murders, Maurice was under suspicion. All right, I'm going to lay this out for everyone. Maurice Pierce and Forrest Wellborn are brought into the police station for questioning. Okay, they're caught with this gun in the mall. Police bring them in. So false confessions and stories are nothing new, right? We hear it all the time. Why do people confess and say things that are completely untrue when they know, in fact, they are innocent? 
Why would anyone confess to something they didn't do, specifically something of a crime of this caliber? But it happens a lot. In fact, we know it happens a lot because just this case alone, we have over 50 confessions by, by different people, 50, over 50 confessions in this case. Maurice tells the investigator that not only was the 22 he was carrying involved in the yogurt shop murders, but that he gave Forrest Wellborn, Wellborn the 22 that night around 10.30 p.m. And that Forrest went off with a group of skinheads and came back with scratches on him and smelled like hairspray. So again, hairspray, fire. The fire was, you know, it, this, this is a 15-year-old kid. Okay, and the only reason I think he made these statements was to get out of the gun charge, almost to put, you know, I, I can't, I don't, I can't explain it, and I'm, I'm gonna have a psychotherapist on the on the show this year to really talk about these sort of things, but this statement was not true. The story just made no sense. So when asked who he was with on the day of the murders besides Forrest Wellborn, he gives the names of Michael Scott and Robert Springsteen. On the same weekend of the murders, Maurice tells the police he stole a Nissan Pathfinder and took these three friends on a joyride to San Antonio. They all were questioned, but these kids were truants. They were all truants when it came to attending school. Their memories were fuzzy. These are kids. They skip school. They go to bowling alleys. They go to the mall. They smoke pot. They're, they're, they just don't really have a care in the world except just being kids and, and, and just sort of, you know, just doing nothing. And, and police, it, it, it gets kind of crazy. They go as far as wiring Maurice up. They decide to wire him up and try to catch Forrest on tape confessing to the murders. So I, I want to read a little bit of kind of how this went um, based on the actual recording of um, what Maurice said to Forrest when he's basically trying to get him to say, yeah, you know, like I did it. So here it goes. He gets wired up. He goes to pick up Forrest from his house. And the first thing Maurice asked him was, where's your hair? And he says, huh? What happened to your hair? Well, he says, well, my dad decided um, he was going to cut it. So Maurice began then pounding away at him. You know, what did you actually do that night, that Friday? And Forrest says, pardon? And Maurice says, that Friday when the girls were dead. And Forrest says, huh? And Marie says, and you said you wanted to use a gun. For Forrest says, when I wanted to use a gun? Question mark. So guys, this went on and on for 5, 10, 15 minutes. And then finally, Maurice starts to get frustrated. And he says, you said that you wanted to use the gun and that you had killed the girls. And Forrest says, man, I was only playing. I was joking. I didn't ever killed anybody. And then Maurice got even more upset. And he says, quote, don't play that game, Forrest. Don't jack with me. And he just becomes, Forrest is just confused and wonders, you know, he's like, why are you so upset at me? I was just kidding. I, I didn't do anything. You know, I was, 
I was with you. I don't, why do you say that I did something? And so this goes on and on and on. And finally, Maurice is starting to like cry. He starts to get frustrated and upset because I think he starts to realize what kind of mess he's really got himself into. And I think at this point, he's scared. He's 15 years old. He thinks he's there for for a gun charge, but now they've turned it on as a murder against him and, and he he's putting it on his friend. Um, so they basically were just like, I'm scared. Like, this is crazy. And I'm scared. And, you know, I didn't do anything. And finally, he just drops him off at home. I mean, Maurice just drops him off the phone. And police are like, oh, like, that's terrible. Nothing came of this. And they start to think, you know, did he just sort of make this up? Was he really not involved? So basically, the investigators back in 1991, they didn't believe him. They didn't believe these boys were involved in the murders, and they just let it go. They filed their their statements away and, and you know, what, what conversations they had with them. And that was it. So in 1991, Austin's population was only about 500,000 people. Austin PD had never dealt with a crime like this before. But guys, just four weeks after the yogurt shop murders, Austin had another crime on their hands. Four days after Christmas, 28-year-old Colleen Reed pulls into an Austin car wash around 9 p.m. She is the only person at the car wash. A few minutes after arriving, two brothers hear a scream coming from the direction of the car wash. They see a car speed off in the wrong direction and they decide to head over and check it out. When they arrive, all they see is Reed's car, but Colleen is nowhere to be found. They immediately contact police. So Kenneth McDuff and Alva Worley kidnapped, raped, tortured, and murdered Colleen Reed. Worley ended up pleading guilty and was handed a 40-year sentence for his involvement in this crime. And McDuff would actually remain free for two more years. He wasn't caught until 1993, and he was arrested then. So he ends up leading police to Reed's body and was ultimately executed in November of 1998. So Kenneth McDuff is a serial killer. We covered um, at one of our live shows, we actually covered Kenneth McDuff, um, dubbed the broomstick killer, also the Bell County serial killer. And this guy was a real piece of shit. He killed at least 10 to 13 women that we know of. But police do believe there are more victims. This guy was given the death penalty, y'all. He was given the death penalty for one of his crimes. But when the death penalty was overturned, he was able to eventually get out of prison. So he would go on to kill more people after being released, including the kidnapping, rape, and torture of Colleen Reed. Kenneth McDuff is responsible for murders all over Texas. More specifically, he confesses to the yogurt shop murders on the day of his execution. Now, before the confession on that day, he had denied being involved in the crime. He was clearly in the Austin area in December of 1991, but he told authorities that he would have been proud to admit that he was responsible for brutally murdering four teenage girls. But he says, it wasn't me. Kenneth McDuff's confession is just one of dozens over the years in this case, a confession in 1992 by two Mexican nationals. Mexican authorities investigated. That was soon disputed and finally ruled false. 
But Kenneth Macduff confesses to this on the day of his execution. But there's nothing connecting him. They do know he was in the Austin area. And is he capable of a crime like this? Absolutely, based on all of his other crimes. But he never confessed to it until the day of his execution. Was he playing tricks with the police? He never... It, it, they were almost certain he wasn't involved right when he said, you know, I, if I did this, I would confess to it. I'm already going to prison forever. I would be proud of this and be able to say it was my work, but it wasn't my work. Now let's fast forward to 1998, seven years after the murder. These four friends, Maurice and the, and the other guys, went on with their lives. They weren't close anymore. They weren't friends. They all lived in separate areas now. And plus, by 1998 and 1999, ballistics had showed that the 22 Maurice was carrying that day was not the gun used in the murders. Now, there's new detectives on the case around this time, and they theorized that the four teens from 1991 were credible suspects. So, by now, the boys, they're all in their 20s. So in a string of interrogations conducted by just the various detectives, confessions were obtained from some of the suspects. So they all said all four had participated in the murder. But guys, no record was actually kept of the 1991 interrogations. So it made it almost impossible to know whether they were supplying them with information currently based on what they knew in 1991. Um, and this can be used to implicate them um, and to actually talk about and reference what they had talked about back in 1991. The Austin PD wanted this crime solved, even at the expense of possibly sending innocent men to prison. And now it's time for my wine recess. So Chris was able to make a delicious meal for the show to go with this delicious white wine I'm drinking tonight. So he made a pesto salmon with maple lemon Brussels sprouts, lemon infused Israeli couscous, and this delicious cucumber apple salad. I couldn't stop eating it. It was so yummy and it went perfect with the Albarino. So thank you, honey, for always going above and beyond with your dishes, wherever you are, work. <laughs> I can't wait to have you back next week. All right, friends, let's jump back into the case. There is so much more detail about these four men and what the police put them through. It almost becomes impossible to believe. The truth is there are corrupt police, just like there are corrupt bankers, lawyers, doctors, you will always find someone corrupt in any line of work. But what the Texas justice system did to these guys was not only unfair, but a witch hunt. They wanted someone to pay for this horrendous crime. After hours of coercion, lies, feeding of information, two of the four boys, Michael Scott and Robert Springsteen, confessed to the murders. They also implicated in their sworn statements that Maurice Pierce and Forrest Welburn were also involved. Based on the confessions, all four are arrested. 
Two of the four were sent to trial entirely due to their self-incriminating statements. There was nothing else to hold them except their own words. This is fact as we know it today because Maurice Pierce and Forrest Wilburn are never brought to trial. The prosecution went into great detail about the horrific nature of the crimes against the young victims, but presented no hard evidence other than the confessions. Let me repeat that. There was zero evidence linking them to the crimes except for the confessions of two young men with low IQs and coerced during police interrogations. The two were convicted, one being sentenced to death and the other sentenced to life because he had been 15 years old at the time of the murders. However, the prosecution's um, you know, tactic of basically pinning one against the other based on their confessions, this is called a confrontation clause. And basically, neither of them testified against each other, but the police used their confessions and the DA used their confessions against each other. Well, because of this, because of just the confrontation clause alone, the men, the, the convictions were overturned and the men were freed in 2009. So the prosecution insists that these guys are going to be retried. But get this, they them, their lawyers, have for so long been fighting for t- to, for the DNA found, right? We know a full DNA profile was found in Amy. A full DNA profile was found um, uh, on Amy. There was other DNA found in two of the other girls as well. One of that DNA was the boyfriend of Jennifer, and he was excluded. So that leaves two male DNA um, unaccounted for. So here's the deal. The other two, they were only implicated because they're confessions. The other two guys, Maurice and Forrest said, we were never there. We didn't have anything to do with this. They never caved. They never said, you know, I did it fine. They never caved. They just, they, they stuck to their, they stuck to their story and say, we weren't there. We weren't involved. So the prosecution abandons the retrial and here's the deal it's because the dna that was found didn't match any of them none of them not one of them not the four of them the dna found on the victim was not theirs so because of this there was no plan for a retrial texas courts later decided that they were not entitled to compensation because they had not proven that they did not commit the crime. And I can't tell you how bad that pisses me off. To say, knowing that the DNA doesn't match the four of them, and knowing you're not retrying them for this crime because of that fact, but yet they, you, you're saying that their innocence is not proven, they can't, you can't prove they didn't commit the crime, so you don't have to compensate them for putting them in prison for both about six to eight years. And we want to believe in our system, right? We want to believe that that there's fairness and that innocent people aren't in prison, but they are. And these are the types of things. Listen, you guys have got, I highly recommend reading Beverly Lowry's book on this case and really diving into the testimonies and the tactics that were used to get these boys to confess. 
and then what it took for a jury to convict. You know, here's the deal. You have these four beautiful young girls that are, you know, just this heinous crime, right? And you're in a trial and you're showing pictures of the bodies. You're having the parents testify and get on the stand. You know, there was some there was some bad stuff that came out of these boys' mouths. Now, I'm not saying, you know, again, it, it, they used their own words, right? And, and some of the things they said, it was hard for the jury to get past, right? When you hear that, but... You know, you, you then again, you're like, what were they fed? What information were they fed? And, you know, but it was clear that even with their confessions, there were so many things wrong, so many details wrong. They, they you know, one of them said, yeah, you know, we we stabbed one of them. Well, they weren't stabbed. You know, we they were killed by gunshot wounds and Amy had been strangled. Yet they pushed and they pushed until they got these poor guys to say what they wanted them to say. So you have a jury, you know, looking at these pictures of these girls coming and, you know, these confessions of these guys. But there is no solid evidence linking them to this crime. Several years later, Maurice Pierce was shot and killed after an interaction with police His family believes he didn't trust the police after everything he had been through, and he just snapped. There have been no other arrests in this case, but there was a key piece of evidence found in 2017. And this, um, I'm going to reference, is by USA Today. The FBI could hold the key to solving one of the most notorious cold cases in Texas history, but the federal agency won't release the information because of privacy concerns. It became frustrating for investigators, devastated family members, and has now put Austin back into the spotlight of growing national debate over the case of family tree forensics. So basically, what they have found is that all they've done is ask for help, right? Bob Ayers, Amy's father, who was Amy was 13 years old when she was 13 years old. She was the youngest victim. And he says, and now we've had something and we can't get it. So a single strand of DNA collected from the victim in the 1991 slaying, um, basically, they found a match in a single suspect that could point to that person's male lineage. Austin police in 2017 matched the sample to one the FBI uploaded into a public research database operated by the University of Central Florida. So this starts to begin a years-long battle. You know, Austin PD against the FBI. And And basically, the FBI is concerned about unconstitutional overreach. And we're going to talk about that in a second because genealogy trees, 23andMe, there's different rules around you submitting your DNA and what remains private. So some law enforcement officials might argue that using partial DNA could help them identify suspects in these types of hard-to-solve cases. But then you have other people that are skeptical and argue that practice unfairly casts basically doubt and you in your you have a large group of family members and basically they're not they're probably not involved in the crime but and so you know you can you can't really base it like basically you can't use the dna to track down an individual it comes as a group so basically what the fbi says is 
we can list it in an, in an anonymous format, such as the university database, but that federal law prohibits such samples to be traced to individuals. Now, they also believe that the number of men sharing the same male-only genetic profile could be in the thousands, and basically that Austin is overstating the significance of this finding. Okay, but um, we know that this type of DNA, which is called Y-STR, Y-STR, some people say Y-STAR, Y-STAR, but this type of DNA It's been used to solve really high-profile crimes across the country. We know that the Boston Strangler, it helped with that case. Um, That confirmed that DeSalvo was the killer, was the Boston Strangler. Um, But advocates of family DNA say police are merely using the latest available science to solve cases that are sometimes decades old, involve serial offenders, and when others investigate um, strategies or they come up just with nothing, that this is a great way to help police solve these crimes. But here's the deal. I got on a few of these websites just to read and research a little bit myself. So those Genealogy Ancestry, 23andMe, places where you can um, voluntarily submit your DNA. It even says on their website, they do everything possible to protect the identity of those voluntarily submitting their DNA. Not only do they not they 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 do not share any of that information with public companies, public entities, but they also protect their identity from law enforcement. Now guys, it states this on their website that that they do everything they possibly can to avoid and to not have law enforcement tracking down people that have voluntarily submitted their DNA. Now, there's a lot of controversy around this. And and one question is, where does the privacy, and that's why I wish Chris would have been on this episode, because I know um, he deals with HIPAA a lot at the hospital, and things you can disclose about someone, and things you can't disclose about someone's health, and, and what, you know, what's going on with them. But when does privacy become... Um, you know, it, it should should it always be that way, right? Should it be should the DNA be private if it's voluntarily given? And but what if it can solve a case like this? Should there be some stipulation that if there is a match, if there is something like this where it can help authorities solve a case like this, a terrible crime, 30 years now unsolved, should there be and now the FBI is able to access this information? Should there be stipulations? Should there be any, uh, should there be laws around this? You know, um, I'm interested to hear what you guys think because this is, believe it or not, a controversy. It's submitting, you're submitting your DNA. They're promising not to give it to anyone, including law enforcement, including even if it can solve a case like this. They're not, they're not, they're not budging. So I'd really like to hear um, your your take, you guys' take on how you feel about this. Okay, I want to give my take on this case, and I want to talk about possible theories. Um, I have two specifically that I want to discuss. I do believe the two men that were sitting at the booth 
when the girls were closing up, are responsible for this crime. Please, if you haven't listened to part one, please go listen to part one. I didn't want to spend too much time summarizing it. But if you listen and listen to this one, it will make a lot more sense. So again, I do believe that the two men that were seen sitting at the booth by the couple that was the last to leave when the girls were closing are responsible for this crime. A part of me feels like they were either familiar with the closing duties or they intentionally wanted to be the last ones in the shop and just got lucky that the girls closed the door and locked it behind the last couple to leave and that was a part of their duty. I do believe the fidgety man in the jacket that I mentioned in part one that was allowing people to go ahead of him in line and ask to use the restroom was involved in this crime. He was so arrogantly asking Daryl Croft. Now, Daryl Croft is the one who owned the security company. His car was parked outside, you know, a security car. You have the lights on top. And so um, if you listen to part one, he's basically asking him, you know, what are you? Are you a cop? Are you security? And, you know, what are you? So that's pretty arrogant to me. I feel like a kid in their 20s, which Daryl Croft, believed he was in his 20s, maybe early 30s, was, you know, it's a little ballsy to be talking to a total stranger in that manner. I believe what was taking him so long to come out of the restroom, remember Daryl Croft said he waited a while, you know, because he saw the guy go back into the bathroom. He was a little concerned that the girls were there. And remember, there was very lack of security in this whole area in general, they were closing up. There was really nobody there to walk them out. So this kid goes in the back and uses the restroom. And so Daryl's kind of hanging out waiting. And finally, he just leaves because the guy's taken so long. But I believe what was taking him so long to come out was the fact that he was roaming the back of the shop and running the plan through his head. I think he was checking out the back door. I think he was looking around. I think he needed a plan. I do believe this crime was committed by men not boys. Based on the manner the girls were made to undress. Now, there were only slight, um, basically, cuts in their clothes, but nothing that was forcible, almost like torture or, you know, just antagonizing the victims. But so they voluntarily undressed because their clothes were not inside out. They were all, um, you know, correct. And then they were folded. And then they put their shoes against the wall. Um, A camo jacket is described by one of the witnesses that possibly one of the perps was wearing. I strongly believe that one or both of the perpetrators has a military background. I felt this when I read that when I was researching this about the clothes, about the shoes against the wall, how everything was so neatly stacked. To me, that's control and someone possibly with a military background. I want to reference a few things we know about the youngest victim, which um, was 13-year-old Amy Ayers. Um, And this is what I had talked about earlier with some of the facts that the police were trying to keep away from the public. And this will lead into my second possible theory in just a minute, but I want to just make note of a few things. Amy's missing leather bomber jacket. Amy's bruise under her chin from a blow of some kind. That Amy was strangled and what she was strangled with. That Amy was shot twice with two different caliber guns. 
And I want to I want to say this because Amy was 13 years old. And I kind of feel like at 13 she not only was scared, terrified watching what's actually going on. I I feel like there was I don't want to I don't want to say this t- until I get into my second part really but but I feel like what happened to Amy may have been because she would have had a harder time controlling her emotions at 13 and maybe you know Eliza and Jennifer and Sarah just might have been a little better of controlling their emotions and maybe someone Amy's age at 13 was just so scared and just had a very hard time, you know, just re not, I don't even want to say remaining calm, but I, but I want to say she may have been giving the perps a harder time. And this will go into my second possible theory in just a minute. Um, but the stealing of the bomber jacket, I don't know exactly what this bomber jacket looked like. And I know they always want to take something, you know, you have the sometimes where the perpetrators will take something from the crime scene. We know two of the girls' um, underwear were taken. They were not found. And so was Amy's bomber jacket. So I'm curious, was it a item of just remembrance of the crime that they had committed? Was it because they were going to give it to someone else? We see that sometimes too, where perpetrators will steal jewelry and give it to their wives or, or give it to their kids happens all the time. Um, and you know, did this person possibly, it's hard to think this and hard to get your mind around this, but could the perpetrators have had a daughter around Amy's age or someone that they knew that was, a that was, that was younger or would have fit in the jacket again? I don't know, but I think there is a reason they took that. Why take the jacket? Why not take more underwear? What Pete is what, you know, sexually motivated crimes, which we're going to talk about. Robbery has always been theorized to be the motive in this crime, but I actually think this was a sexually motivated crime. The office door was locked. There was a floor safe in the office and a key to the office sitting under the cash register. They never wanted or asked to access the office. We know this. Because these girls would have given them anything they wanted to make it all stop. If theory one is correct, I think they were not expecting Sarah and Amy to be there. I believe Eliza and Jennifer would have been the intended targets since they were both working at the yogurt shop and they were both around 17 years old. But these sick pieces of shit moved moved all the girls to the back of the shop and got them all under control. And like I mentioned, I think Amy, at just 13 years old, was probably just beside herself, scared to death. And this could have been the reason they had tied the knot, um, the piece of cloth around her neck um, that could have been possibly used as a gag and some sort of to keep her under control and quiet, which is why I believe she was also strangled with the knotted material. So I do believe the bodies had been stacked. So we know that Amy 
was um, found separate from the other girls. And I don't even, this place is not big, okay? This yogurt shop is not big. She was only about four feet from the rest of the girls. I do believe, though, they had all been stacked. And I think that because Amy was shot last, I do believe she was shot last. And the reason she didn't die from the first shot was because she moved her head because she knew what was coming. She had just seen three of her friends killed. And I do believe she was put on top. And I do think this is why this is how Jennifer's DNA ended up. Um, this is how Jennifer's DNA ended up in her fingernails was because Jennifer, because we know Eliza and Sarah are stacked on top of each other and Jennifer is on top of them. And remember, Jennifer's body is found to the side of them. And I think this is because Amy got off the top and Jennifer somehow was knocked off as well which left the two girls at the bottom still stacked. The back door had pry marks, and this is how they know they got out the door. And we know this because the front door still had the key in it and was locked from the outside. Um, the fire started because there was flammable materials. There were styrofoam cups. There were napkins. There were all kinds of things. And I do believe that they wanted to make sure that the girls were burned beyond recognition, and that is why they put cups on them and other items to make sure that they burned. I think Amy, some people think she was dragged into that spot and shot a second time because they found she was alive, and we know that's what happened. But I actually believe when she realized there was a fire and she was possibly playing dead, I think she knew she had to, it was burn. Or try to run. And I think she she crawled off the top. And I think that they dragged her into that small area. And then put a shot in her head. And then flipped her over. Remember, she's found on her side. She's kind of found in a funky position. And they do believe, and I do believe also, that um, they basically were checking to make sure she was now dead. You know, you take a, you took, they took her arm and sort of flipped her back so they could see her face, and then they left her. So her right, you know, her right arm and her left arm are kind of, you know, a little wonky, and she's actually found on her side. Okay, my second theory is just a small change to the first one, and that is that Amy and Sarah may have been the intended targets. Jennifer picks them up from the mall and they arrive before the creepy guy comes in to use the restroom. I am curious to know if there was some altercation at the mall involving the two girls or if they were followed. And since the mall was so close to the yogurt shop, remember, Jennifer leaves to go pick up Sarah and Amy from the mall and come right back to work. It's very close. You know, could they have followed them back to the shop? You know, maybe, just maybe, the perps are brought to the shop from the mall, and they just become victims of opportunity. Maybe that's why Amy was so controlled by them. Did something happen? Did they, did they have some interaction with her? That's just something we don't know. There have been other suspects that they have looked at in this case in regard to who could have possibly committed um, such a heinous crime. Some of those include just crimes of opportunity, truckers, motorcyclists just passing through. 
There was a serial killer um, by the name of the Ice Cream Killer on death row in Tennessee. And this, this crazy ass specialized in shops where frozen desserts were sold. Um, there's no real proof of this. And plus, serial killers generally like to work alone. And we know the yogurt shop had at least two perpetrators there. Uh, Kenneth McDuff, again, confessed on um, the day of his execution that he had, you know, he was responsible for these murders, but he had said so many times before that he didn't do it. If he did do it, he would have admitted it because he would have been proud of it. Could it have been somebody that knew Kenneth McDuff, though? We know that he rode around with other guys who committed terrible crimes and murders. We, he had an accomplice at, um, at the Colleen Reed abduction and murder. So could it have been someone that he knew, which is also a possibility? And we talked about the Mexican nationals. There were there were drug dealers, rapists. I mean, there. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of who they thought could have just committed this terrible, terrible murder. I mentioned on episode one that this is a crime that has gone unsolved. Austin's most heinous crime is still unsolved after 30 years. So I always know and believe that someone knows something. So if you know something, you've heard something. Again, I feel like people like this don't know how to keep their mouths shut. I think that there's someone out there who knows exactly who did this, exactly who was responsible for this. Or were you, you know, do you know someone that was in this area at this time 30 years ago that, that, you know, I don't know, was ended up being in prison for something. I always say prison and people in prison can solve crimes. I feel like there is always, sometimes you have to, you know, you have to shuffle through the, the uh, confessions and, and uh, the statements that come from different people. But, you know, somebody knows something. So please, let's bring closure to these families after so very long. 30 years is such a long time. And I know that Austin Police Department wants to solve this case and bring the perpetrators to justice, but 30 years is a long time. So please, if you know something, contact the Austin Police Department, the FBI, anyone, your local police, I don't care. Just do the right thing. Turn these people in. And if, if you, even if you think you could be wrong, if something just, if, just, if there's just a thought in your head, you're like, you know what? Yes, I, my parents were living over there at the time. Maybe I could talk to them. Just anything to help these families. Let's get this crime solved. That concludes part two of the Yogurt Shop Murders. If you want to see pictures related to this case, you can find them on our Instagram and Facebook pages. Huge thank you to Edge of the Lake Vineyard for sponsoring the show and this delicious wine for this episode. I am giving them five corks for their best-selling white tonight's Albarino. Albarino is their best-selling white wine. This wine is bursting with zest of citrus. This gives off a combination of grapefruit and honeydew to the nose. This is their driest white wine and the boldest. The uniqueness of the Albarino grape all allows it to pair well with melon, apples, which is so glad Chris did this apple cucumber nut salad. It was so delicious. And don't forget the soft cheeses while also going great with salty cured meats. This wine was awarded best in class Texas white in the Texas International Wine Competition. 
And guys, we have a bonus for all of you listeners out there. If you go visit our friends at Edge of the Lake Vineyard and mention the show, they will give you a free wine tasting. You can't beat that. And guys, I have seen, I cannot wait to go out and visit them, but I have seen pictures and it is gorgeous. Y'all have to go check it out. They have great wine. They are great people. You can't beat that, friends. So go visit our friends at Edge of the Lake Vineyard and tell them your friends from Texas Wine and True Crime sent you. So instead of an organization today, I want to talk about just the new year. The last couple of years have been really tough for a lot of people, and we have now entered 2022 with some uncertainties walking into the year. But one thing we can all do is be the best version of ourselves. Give your time, give your money, give your positive energy, create and set the intentions for this year that will make you become a better person. Nobody is perfect. We all can be better. We all can be wiser and we all can learn to love more. So I wish each of you nothing but good vibes in this new year and hope you will always strive to be the best version of you. Until next time, friends, stay safe, have fun, and cheers to next time.